Amen. Please remain standing just for a moment and take your Bibles and turn with me if you've got them to our scripture reading for the sermon passage, Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 19. This is God's word. Let's give attention to it now. Matthew 11, verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let your mercy come to me, that I may live. Amen. Please be seated. How many of you, I wonder, had a father or a mother who said, consider the source? Anybody ever get that advice? You came home on one particular occasion and maybe a friend, a classmate, or somebody on the school ground said to you something that cut really deep. And if they didn't start out with saying, the sticks and stones may break my bones, but words shall never hurt me lie. (laughs) They said to you, well, consider the source. Remember who is making that remark. Do you really trust that person's judgment? Do you ask them about things? Do you really value what they say? You say, well, no. And then they would say something like this. Well, don't, don't let it bother you so much. And they tried to help, but maybe it didn't help as much as they had intended. As we come to Matthew chapter 11, and we're continuing here in this chapter, verses 16 to 19, Jesus is, remember, he is acting as a judge. And That's sort of a subtle point, I think, in the passage. He's acting as a judge uh, to his people, and uh, he's describing his relationship with those who follow him. Some believed. You think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus called his disciples to him. He sat down and he began to teach them. There were some, though, that were outsiders, They hadn't come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They'd come to Him to see what He was doing. They were inquiring, as it were, but they hadn't believed on Him yet. Very many have only enjoyed the spectacle. It's sort of like following Barnum and uh, Bailey's circus as they go through the countryside. They've gone out for the spectacle. And so Jesus said, what did you go out to see? So I think this gives us an opportunity as we go through verses 16 to 19 to talk in three points about the nature of the unbelieving heart. And before we get there, I want to say something about the nature of God's grace toward the world. Did you know that God has grace toward every single person? Um... Jesus is going to make an application here in verse 16. He says, what shall I liken this generation? 
And so he's making a broad generalization. And some of you if, you, if you've been to logic class and you learn how to make logical arguments, the first thing you know is that we, broad generalizations are always false. So if you, if you go to your husband or your wife and you say, you always do this or that, well, immediately that's a lie. Because there's been that one occasion where your husband did put the lid down on the toilet. But God has a certain kind of grace toward the world in general. Did you know that the world is not as bad as it could possibly be? Why is that? Well, because God in his exercise of grace toward the world in general restrains wicked men from doing all that they want to do. So, for instance, he might uh, 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 bring to frustration some men who want to commit a murder and their plot is found out, or they want to kidnap and their plot is found out. Well, this is the exercise of God's, what we call, common grace. He causes the rain and the sunshine to come upon wicked men and righteous men alike. And he keeps wicked men from being as bad as they could possibly be. He prevents a total plummet into evil, in other words. But God also has a saving grace, doesn't he? And this is a special kind of grace that hopefully you've recognized he's exercised in your life toward all of his elect, where he calls us to himself and he causes us to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's a different kind of grace. That's a special kind of grace. But here in our passage, Jesus is making some general sort of judgments about mankind. And some of you, you might be inclined to say, well, I know some unbelieving people who aren't that bad. Well, sure, because God's common grace toward them is a little bit different. So this doesn't mean that everyone in the crowd was equally as evil as Jesus describes them. But it does mean, it does mean that everybody in the crowd listening to that message expressed that non-belief to some degree. And so as we listen and try to understand what Jesus is saying, I think it's important for us to continually judge ourselves. Can these things be applied to me? What things do I need to be sanctified in? Because this forms a lens for us that informs our reading of Matthew's Gospel to understand Jesus' interactions with the people Multitudes came to him for healing. Why is it that we didn't see some sort of mass revival of spirituality and righteous living going on related to Jesus' ministry? Because few received his teaching. Jesus here described three aspects of the non-believer's condition. One, he cannot be pleased. You're saying, well, I know somebody like that. Two, he has little regard for authority. Three, he silences his cell phone in the sermon. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it's the Lord's providence. I had to take advantage. 
The third, the third point is that he is foolish in his thinking. I was going to make the third point, he is a fool. Cassandra said, that's a little hard, so I softened it a little bit. The three things that we see in the passage here. The non-believer can't be pleased. He has little regard for authority, and he is foolish. Now, just for a moment, remember where we are in John's gospel. John sent his disciples to Jesus saying, are you the one? And, and Jesus answered him, and I, I think the, real, the essence of his answer was, John, blessed is the man who's not offended by me. And I, he's encouraging John in that way. You have stood the test. You have been firm and steadfast. John, I have blessed you. That's the sign. And then Jesus has turned his attention to the crowds. So this is a unique moment. Remember, because in the Sermon on the Mount and in the commission of the disciples in in chapter 10, Jesus was teaching his disciples specifically. Now he is spreading his bread, he's spreading his seeds very broadly to the whole crowd. He's speaking to everyone in general. Dismiss John's disciples. He's now addressing the crowds. And what he shows us, first of all, is that non-believers cannot be pleased in verses 16 to 17. Let's look at it again. Turn your eyes to the text. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Notice, now that Jesus turns his attention to the crowds in general, how does he begin to teach them? In a parable. This is very important. To this point, he has spoken plainly to his disciples. Remember what he said, when you preach my word, it's going to cause division. A son is going to be turned against his father. A daughter-in-law is going to be turned against her mother-in-law. He has spoken very plainly. Now, he speaks in a parable. And some of you, maybe you've taught Sunday school or you attended vacation Bible school and you heard the parable of the sower or you heard the parable of the lost son or the lost coin or the lost sheep. And your teacher said, see, Jesus teaches in parables to help you understand the point. That's not why Jesus taught in parables. And we're going to get to that in just a moment when we get to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus taught in parables as an act of judgment. And one of the things that we're going to see in chapters 11 and 12 is that God conceals the truth as an act of judgment against his people. This is the reason that Jesus begins with the parable to the people. What's the parable? Well, he talks about children in a marketplace. You can, you can kind of get a, a picture of this going on. There are, there are the kids in, in a marketplace, uh, sitting in the marketplace, which would have been a broad, open square. Maybe you've been to, maybe you think of a flea market if you like to attend flea markets, or if you've been overseas to places like Peru and China, you go and there's meat hanging up and there are fish with dogs under the table below and there are all kinds of goods being sold and and people are just out. Some people are standing around talking, men enjoying coffee with one another. It's a broad open place. In fact, the Greek word is agora. Maybe you've heard uh, agoraphobia, which is somebody who has a fear of public places. Well, this is the kind of place that Jesus 
is talking about. And in this marketplace, there are children. Their moms and dads are off shopping, buying the day's goods, and their children are getting together and playing. And some of the kids are sitting there, they're engaging in a game, calling out to one another. And as we get into that, the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus is telling this parable about whom? This generation. There's the broad idea. The children are this generation. Um, In chapters 11 to 12, Jesus is going to address this generation five times. Some of you, maybe you've had a grandfather who said, I just want to tell you about this generation. This generation is worthless and no good, lazy, wants everything handed to him. Well, Jesus has some similar things to say. In Matthew 16, verse 4, he calls it an evil and adulterous generation. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 17, he will call them a faithless and twisted generation. The reason that Jesus uses this language, this generation, is because God's covenants are perpetual. In other words, when God established the covenant with Noah, He also established that covenant with every generation that would come after Noah. When He established His covenant with Abram, He also established that covenant with every generation that came after Abram. This is why they applied the sign of the covenant, circumcision to their sons, because they were members of the covenant. And Scripture, as we work our way through the Bible, what we find is that some generations arise, and it seems like they are faithful. And then suddenly the next generation comes up, and they're faithless. You remember we were just reading this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Did you catch the phrase where Moses said, and we wandered in the wilderness until all that generation died off? The generation that came out of Egypt quickly forgot all of the amazing works that God had done in Egypt, and they said, we want to go back. And then in the book of Judges, in chapter 2, verse 10, what we find is that a generation generation died off, and the subsequent generation, it says they did not know God. So Jesus is borrowing from this language, and He's saying, the generation that I am standing in the midst of, all of you adults who are gathered here around me, let me speak to you. And the way that I would describe you is you are like children playing a game in a marketplace. They cry out in the marketplace, you didn't dance. We played the flute We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. You're not playing along. Come on. And I think the very simple point of this is that the non-believer sees himself as the center of the universe. Just like these children. Maybe you've played a game with very young children. It's a game that really only one side has a lot of fun at. It's the game where the The little child is sitting in his high seat and he knocks the cup off onto the floor. 
and you reach down and you pick the cup up and you put it back on the tabletop and suddenly he's laughing and what does he do? Knocks it off again. Get it again. And you pick it up and you put it back on. Knocks it off again. You pick it up and you put it on again. And over and over. And this game would go on until nap time if you as a parent didn't say, okay, that's enough. And suddenly the child breaks down in tears. Ah! This is how Jesus is describing the non-believer. He sees himself as the center of the universe. You see, because he doesn't have a fundamental concept of living under the rule of Jesus Christ, he thinks that all things exist for his pleasure. Surely this universe is a display of how great I am. My God is pleasure. The children wanted to play and be entertained rather than heed the weighty, eternal matters about which John and Jesus taught. This, don't you see now? This is why Jesus said, what did you go out to see? He's describing these people. They want a spectacle. They don't want eternal truths about which they have to conform their lives they want a king who will drive out Rome and bring peace so that they can sit and eat and fill their bellies. And so this is one of the practical reminders here for us is that in, in your relationships with non-believers, and I, I hope that you do try to build relationships with non-believers so that you can share the gospel. That is essential. But one of the things that you have to understand is that your non-believing friends are always interested in pleasing themselves. Let me make that just a little more practical. This is why the Bible says that you should seek a spouse who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and who demonstrates that he believes it by his lifestyle. If you don't do that, you're going to wind up being yoked to an individual who's only interested in his own pleasure. This is the unbelieving heart. He's like a child. And you're the monkey. Do what I tell. Come on, dance, dance, dance. But this also reminds us of how Christ helps. He enables you to see that He is the center of the universe. When we read through the book of Colossians, He is the one who enables you to see that He is supreme over all things. That His glory prevails. That you are a nothing in this world. That you are like dust upon the scales. You don't even move it one way or the other. All the nations gathered together are like that. That all of these things exist to demonstrate the glory of Jesus Christ. That's how Christ helps you. But not only does the non-believer... It not only is he impossible to please, but he also has no regard for authority. Notice with me in verses 18 to 19. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is a, essentially a lesson from two men who were appointed by God to do great works. 
We notice the conduct of the men, how, how very different it was. John came, and you remember the picture of John in Matthew chapter 3. What did he wear? He wore camel hair. It wasn't a nice camel hair sports coat. It was actual camel hair, probably taken from the camel that day, wrapped himself in a leather belt, in every way depicting himself as the prophet Elijah. He ate locusts and honey. In other words, he was, he, you might have looked at him like you watch a, a monk go along the street today and you think, how odd. And then you think about the conduct of Jesus. How did he conduct himself? Well, he, he wasn't an aesthetic. He wasn't fasting. He wore ordinary clothes, ordinary sandals. Um, when you had a meal and you invited him over, he came and ate with you. And it was an ordinary meal, ordinary food, ordinary wine. Everything that the folks took part of, Jesus took part of. But notice now how the crowd judged John and Jesus. This is important. What did they say about John? Well, they looked at him and they said, well, he has a demon. Why, does he, well, why is he wearing that? Why is he out here crying out? They, they went out to see him, right? Everybody went out to see. And some people listened and they observed him and they said, well, he's obviously got a demon. And then there were some who are coming out to Jesus and they're observing his ordinary life. And they say, well, he's a glutton and a drunkard, clearly. And not only that, but he actually loves tax collectors and sinners. And we know nobody loves tax collectors. You can hear the Pharisees' judgment slipping in here. But, but what's happening? What's happening in both of these cases? In both of these cases... People have gone out, they have listened, they've received the words, and in both cases, they have come up with a reason to say, I don't have to listen to that. I don't have to listen to John say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, because he has a demon. I don't have to listen to Jesus um, in his teaching, because obviously he's a glutton and a drunkard. You, you see what's happening. The, the unbeliever, the non-believer is rationalizing within himself how to dismiss the message. John was the greatest man ever to live, Jesus said. And you dismiss him as having a, a demon. I come as the Son of Man according to Daniel's prophecy. The one who will ascend up to the Ancient of Days having conquered every kingdom. And you say I'm a glutton and a drunkard. Yet with each sermon, the non-believing crowd found plenty of ways to wriggle out of conviction. Have you ever sat and wondered, what is the best defense of Christianity? Maybe some of you have given yourselves to the study of apologetics. And maybe you focus entirely on creation. You say, I have got to learn how to defend the doctrine of creation. And you look at things like a, a giraffe, and how does a giraffe bend over and drink water and drink, drink, and then raise all the way back up and not pass out? When the blood rushes out of his head and then get eaten by a lion. 
and you present all these evidences. And you've gotten really good at all of these evidences, and you look at Look at amazing things like, you know, where did a platypus come from? And whose idea was that? Um, you look at a, a hummingbird and how fast the, the wings can flap. And all of these evidences for the beauty of God's creation. And you think, well, look at the eyeball. And look how intricately it is designed and how it functions. And, and the body itself, how it functions. And maybe you sit and you wonder, maybe, maybe that non-believing friend that you, you're trying to, to minister to, you're thinking, what, what is the perfect argument? When I was, well, just say many, many years ago, I remember uh, a friend of mine saying, I'm trying to show my friends that Christians have similar types of music to non-Christians so that they'll want to become Christian. One of the things that we can take away from the crowd's criticism of Jesus and John is that here's John and here's Jesus and they wouldn't even listen to them. Why do you think they're going to listen to you? There's not a perfect argument. This is one of the reasons that that we would say... Do you, do you, it's not your job to prove to anybody that the Bible is God's word. That's not your job. That's God's job. It's God's work to convince men that it is his words. word. We read that this morning from our uh, catechism. It, it says, um, but the spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures in the heart of man is alone. Now alone means only by itself, nothing else, is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. So then we can think, again, how does Christ help non-belief? What does He do to come alongside? Well, He convicts your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. If you have sat under the preaching of God's Word, or, or if in your daily Bible study you find that your heart is convicted by your sin and you want to repent and you confess your sins to the Lord and you find that He's helping you to get victory over some certain sins, that sense of conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit. And it is He alone who enables you to see Christ in His beauty. To stop saying, when are you going to dance? When are you going to mourn? Well, look at how silly He is. It is the Holy Spirit who helps you to stop making those excuses and embrace your guilt, confess your sins to the Lord, and to receive His forgiveness. A non-believer won't do that. The only one who can pin down the non-believer's slippery soul is the Holy Spirit sent by Christ and ordained of the Father to do the work of redemption. So preach the word. You don't do the convincing. You do the sharing. You do the loving. You do the serving. And expect the Lord to do the work. Thirdly, finally, we see that <clears throat> not only are non-believers uh, self-centered, not only do they reject the authority of the word, non-believers are foolish 
in their thinking, Jesus ends with this little statement, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Here he gives us a note of a note of wisdom. Wise men, very simply, wise men will do wise things. Wise men will do wise things. Jesus links his and John's deeds with their message, do you see? In other words, if you see a man who is wise in his living, self-controlled, he's temperate, he manages himself and his time and his resources well, if you find a man who conducts himself in that way, then generally what you expect is that you could go to him for wise counsel. Wise deeds lead you back to a man who has wisdom. What Jesus is saying is if, look, you've come out to see, you've observed our deeds, what should that lead you to? Listening. If you really understand and perceive what's happening around you, lepers being made whole. Now you think about what Jesus said in his evidence to John. What did he see? And Jesus answered them, this is uh, Matthew eleven four. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. You see, all, but all of these works are pointing back to something and they're pointing the people to Jesus' words. Because wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And what Jesus is saying is that the fool is not interested in learning. In fact, if we, if we really understand the fool's estate, the fool, the man who rejects Christ, is fundamentally not knowledgeable about anything. Psalm 14.1 reminds us that the fool has reached a conclusion. He is in his 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 years observed everything around him and he has seen it all, man. Everything there is to be seen. And he's concluded there's no God. The unbeliever, he doesn't see any defect in himself. My interpretation is perfect every time. I never miss a fact. There is no God. He does not need repentance. He does not need help. Because he has, after all, himself. Throughout this message, Jesus is calling your attention to his message. Don't stop with the miracles. That's what he's saying. Don't stop with the miracles. It's, it's not about the show. Don't think that the miracles are the point. The miracles are intended to drive you to the message that God the Father has sent His Son. The day has come. Messiah is in your midst. Listen to Him. You think about the words of, of God the Father when the heavens are split apart. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Why? 
Because he has the words of eternal life, as Peter says. He is the one who has the road map to eternity. He's come to give you abundant life. He's come to give it to you. How do I receive it? Listen and believe. I can't do his works. Of course you can't. Only he could and his apostles after him. And it's all to drive home the message. Listening is the key. And God in His grace, not His common grace, but God in His saving grace toward you has given you ears to hear. He said, you, you've, you've seen it. You've seen the beauty of Christ. You've had the beatific vision. You, you've, you've, you cling, cling to His words now. You, you, you read His word. You marinate in it. You take it into your heart and you bring out the fruit of it. I think if we sum up this passage, and maybe the one before it, what did you go out to see? If we sum them up, we might sum it up this way. Are, are you listening? When you sit down to read your Bible, when you sit under the preaching of God's Word, good and bad preaching, are you sitting with a heart ready to receive Listen, discern the truth, and live according to what you hear that's true and right. Believers, as we minister in this world, we have to be ready to receive the criticisms of unbelievers. And here's how, here's how we do it. We, we, uh, we consider the source. They're self-centered. They don't understand the truth. They don't submit to authority. We cannot be so foolish to think that we can simply do good deeds and gain reception. Evangelism is not just about community service. Those who hate the message, listen, those who hate the message of Christ will always find a way to criticize it. And this is because... Non-believers cannot be pleased. They do not regard authority and are foolish in their thinking. Are we saying stop? No, absolutely not. Christ went on to preach in their cities and in their towns and in their villages. But you and I have to understand that as we go forth preaching the gospel, we go forth unto a people who have hard hearts that prevent them from drawing right conclusions about anything in this life. So we preach, and we pray, and we yield, and we wait for the Lord's work. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we thank you so much for the message of the gospel. We thank you that you, as our great Messiah, came forth to proclaim good news to us as Gentiles. We, we sit here as not any of us as ethnic Jews, but as Gentiles, and we thank you that because that generation to which you ministered was faithless, the good news came to us. And Lord, we praise you and ask that you be merciful to us. Help us not to be a self-centered people, not to disregard authority, and not to harden our hearts against you, but work in us by your Holy Spirit to hear your word and to bring forth its fruit. We pray in your name. Amen.